Hello and welcome to the Editor's Podcast for the October 2023 edition of Practical Neurology, the journal that does what it says on the attractive cover. It describes the practice of neurology. And neurology is best done together. So we have two editors, Phil Smith and Garrett Fuller, and also a podcast team, including Amy Ross Russell and Martin Turner, who has been doing a case reports uh, podcast. So Garrett, case reports a good idea? I think there's, there's little doubt that case reports are incredibly important for us to learn neurology. Um, it's quite interesting. We, we tend to concentrate on the reviews. Uh, we discuss the reviews here, and Amy, obviously, uh, in her podcast, talks us through the editor's choice uh, in an interview with the team that's written the, the paper. And that's incredibly helpful and, and often a very rich uh, resource and hopefully very informative. But in, in our third and newest podcast, Martin Turner from Oxford discusses clinical cases from the specific edition with uh, Ruth and Xin Yu, and I think brings out really quite what you can learn from case reports. I mean, I think we, we probably slightly presume that our readers are, are benefiting from the case reports, the idea that you can not just read the story and uh, learn from an unusual story, but also see what tests were done in a patient in a particular situation. So you can try and learn how they uh, approached it. You can see what they considered, the alternatives they considered, and then obviously benefit uh, from an unusual story and a discussion and reflection on the, the case. So the, the case reports are very, very rich and I think um, hopefully people discussed difficult and interesting cases but actually hearing Martin and uh, Ruth and Zinu discussing it is very helpful so I think we would very much encourage people to listen to those uh, recordings and uh, read the case reports and, and learn what, what they can from them the rest of the medical literature has broadly abandoned them so practical neurology is, is something of a bastion against uh, purely evidence-based medicine yeah, I mean, case case reports. So you know, it's really valuable for for grounding the practice to see a real example. And actually, the way that Martin does the podcast by using it rather like a grand round, I suppose, and uh, gently quizzing his colleagues to uh, talk more about the detail of the case. So uh, I, I think it works really well. And um, I think we shouldn't in any way apologise for making case reports a big part of of what we do in practical neurology. And, and crucially, we, we launch these podcasts out of sequence, so you can't just turn this one off and go straight to Martin's uh, podcast. You, you have to uh, wait your turn uh, before that comes out. So on to the main meat of the issue then. Um, the first uh, paper, an open access paper from uh, Victoria in Australia, it's called Convexity Subarachnoid Hemorrhage, A Practical Guide. And Garant, you've been looking at this one. So this is a, a, a slight departure for us because for the most part, when we um, have reviews, they tend to be of clinical syndromes, um, disorders and so on. Whereas this, this has its starting point as a radiological finding, uh, convexity subarachnoid hemorrhage. So uh, it seems slightly unrealistic, but actually in reality, oftentimes that's the way we suddenly will uh, approach a case. And you'll see a patient and patients with convexity Subarachnoids can present obviously with headache, but also with uh, confusion, uh, focal neurological symptoms, headache, um, with uh, other features thrown in. So it, there's really quite a wide range of presentations. And, and the question then is, well, how do you try and tackle it? And I think the, the authors, John Van Lay and colleagues, have, have taken us through this 
patterns. I mean, obviously, aneurysmal subarachnoid is very familiar, and the minority, about 6% of uh, subarachnoids, turn out to be convexity. And, and by this, they mean rather than uh, some hemorrhage around the uh, circle of Willis, where the majority of aneurysmal uh, hemorrhage occurs, these are just typically small areas of hemorrhage on the outside uh, in the um, without really a, very much of a splash, as it were. And uh, radiologically, they, they seem to be separated. Uh, but the other key feature is that, is that they seem to be two different approaches. If you've got a young patient, someone under 60, you've got a much wider differential. You've got um, PRES, uh, posterior reversible encephalopathy syndrome, and the reversible cerebral vasoconstriction syndrome. And those two account for a substantial proportion of the patients. They, they discuss those entities nicely. I mean, they're, they're quite challenging because they aren't entirely worked out. There's an overlap between the two conditions. And then uh, the other main group is actually uh, patients who have cerebral venous sinus thrombosis. So the, the younger patients, that's the spectrum of problems. In older patients, uh, cerebral amyloid angiopathy uh, is the, the main concern. And uh, I, I think cerebral amyloid angiopathy is something we're increasingly diagnosing, increasingly understanding, and actually understanding that there are a variety of variants, including the inflammatory variants, uh, the angiopathies with inflammation, uh, which actually are very important to recognize because they uh, respond to treatment with immunosuppressants. So they take us through these different uh, entities and they highlight which of the features of different conditions are pushy one way or the other. But the truth of the matter is that you're going to probably uh, consider doing an angiogram uh, and a CT angiogram rather or an MR angiogram rather than a, a, a digital subtraction or a formal angiogram as they refer to. And oftentimes if you do that then the first thing obviously the radiologist will be doing is excluding a subarachnoid hemorrhage from an aneurysm. But once they've done that and very often you actually have to go back to the radiologist, you need to ask them whether they can see a beading and areas of, of, of vasoconstriction because that would then push you very much to reversible cerebral vasoconstriction syndrome. Uh, if you can't see that, obviously it can form into to pres. And uh, for the most part, um, patients with cerebral venous sinus thrombosis have a slightly different presentation, uh, but obviously va vascular imaging but in the venous phase is going to be important for those. Cerebral amyloid angiopathy, for the most part, is best diagnosed by doing an MRI and looking particularly at the sequences which allow you to see blood and um, blood products, because very often the superficial subarachnoid uh, hemorrhage is not the only time there's been a bleed. Oftentimes you'll see other small areas of bleeding, uh, white matter changes and so on. And clearly if you see a large amount of inflammation, then that can point you very much towards the uh, inflammatory versions. And I think coming back to the notion about case reports being educational, within this they've got a series of very nicely illustrated case reports as exemplars of uh, the common formats with imaging um, and really ways to be able to sort of highlight the subtle changes that very often are very helpful in the diagnosis here. Uh, they discuss management, and clearly the management is different according to the diagnosis. The uh, reversible cerebral vasoconstriction syndrome will typically improve with vasodilators. The data behind that is actually not as good as one would like. In patients with PRES, very often there's a trigger factor, hypertension, uh, various medications, drugs, and so on, and very often you can treat that. Um, a lot of those patients may have seizures, so they might be given magnesium and, and various things. So, so there are various therapeutic opportunities there. 
And then the main issue with the uh, cerebral amyloid angiopathy is to try and make sure that you don't have the inflammatory version, which would require more radical treatment and very often requires a brain biopsy to be able to get to that diagnosis. So I think it's a really nice paper, albeit starting in a slightly unusual place for us, but probably one that readers will be familiar with. Yeah, it's it's the thing I like about it most. And the thing that makes it the practical neurology paper is that it, it starts with the endpoint, And uh, we know how that can uh, be caused by many different conditions. A bit a bit like we're going to talk about later on with genetics, the locus heterogeneity, the, uh, the end result, the Alzheimer might be caused by all sorts of different uh, genetic conditions. In this case, uh, these four conditions that you've outlined. So I think it works really well from that point of view. Uh, things I learned from it, I learned that amyloid spells, despite being uh, a sort of eponym uh, and something that perhaps doesn't really ca- is caused by amyloid, are now called recurrent transient focal neurological episodes, RTFNE. Not sure if that's going to stand the test of time, actually. I think people might continue to call them amyloid spells for simplicity. The other thing is the really helpful debate in the paper about anticoagulating people with uh, cerebral amyloid angiopathy because, of course, we know that they are at real risk of low bar hemorrhage, which could be fatal. Um, And there isn't really a right answer for it at the moment. And they say, yes, they're awaiting the results of the Enrich AF trial, which we'll be reporting in 2024. Already, actually, that trial has stopped recruiting people with low bar hemorrhage because they've had a poor outcome. But people with convexity subarachnoid hemorrhage, the jury is still out. I mean, uh, and probably the best thing is to randomize the patients rather than uh, to go for one way or or another. It's uh, a very, very difficult uh, situation. So, a very good paper. I think that um, un- unusual, as we've heard, because it comes at the problem from uh, a slightly unusual way. Um, but uh, yeah, really useful, really practical. Like it. Uh, and in fact, the next paper is starting from a radiological dimension. Uh, and uh, this uh, also comes from Australia, this time from Sydney. And uh, Sai Shivanda Chaganti and team talk about the uh, multiparametric imaging in the evaluation of intracerebral abscesses. And Phil, you're going to take us through this. Yes, thank you, Guy. Well, this is another paper where neurologists need a bit of working knowledge of the subject that's not their core business. And uh, it is quite a technical paper. It's very well illustrated. It's, uh, It's for the clinician but it bears a bit of rereading and I have to say I've worked quite hard at going through this and really enjoyed the challenge and come away from it quite well informed about MRI but it is more the sort of paper that you'll put to one side and refer to when you need to speak to a radiologist about trying to distinguish an abscess from other things and then trying to get more information about the abscess itself. So a bit of background of course we know that cerebral abscess is really important, is is treatable, but it's only one or two percent of space-occupying lesions in the brain. And uh, uh, there is also a change in the characteristics of abscesses in the days of immunosuppression, um, where, you know, fungal and parasitic and tubercular abscesses feature more. But the advent of new MR techniques have meant we can do so much more in distinguishing these from other lesions and finding out more about the abscess itself. So um, 
the specifics, and I need to look at the paper here to uh, to refer to it. So the first thing is that the features of a pyogenic abscess, uh, you have a T2 hypo-intense capsule. So far, so good. The second thing is that the middle of the capsule, the pus, is going to show restriction because there is no movement of water protons in there because, and this is characteristic of any purulent lesion. So it will show up on diffusion weighted imaging. The third thing is that there is a dual ring around a mature abscess, a dual ring of the outer one uh, caused by free radicals released from macrophages, which means it doesn't vibrate in a magnet, whereas the inner ring uh, of granulation tissue does, and that shows up as bright. And so you get a dark ring around a bright ring and a mature abscess. So that's the first thing. The second thing is distinguishing abscesses from tumours. And here we need MR perfusion imaging. So mature abscess walls have low blood volume because they have fibroblasts compared to the white matter, whereas the walls of gliomas and metastases have high blood volume. And so perfusion imaging can help here as well. The third thing is the type of abscess. And here we use MR spectroscopy to distinguish anaerobic from aerobic abscesses. So uh, uh, an aerobic abscess it's the pyruvate is metabolized through the TCA cycle that, um, and succinate is just an intermediate. And so it is low in succinate. Whereas an anaerobic abscess, the um, pyruvate is fermented first to malate and then mitochondrial convert it to succinate. And so it has a high succinate content. The second thing is that it can distinguish um, a, a glioma from an abscess because there is no neural component within the abscess. And so there's no, on spectroscopy, there's no NAA, creatine, or choline. And the third thing is in a fungal abscess, you have a trehalose peak because of polysaccharide capsule. And the final thing is it can help with is distinguishing tuberculomas, which uh, have a high lipid content. And so this, this scanning magnetization transfer contrast can help with that. So it's complicated, guide, but they do have their feet on the ground, these authors, and they give us some practical advice at the end. They tell us, of course, that actually it's very difficult to do an MR scan in someone who's very unwell, and uh, getting things like proton spectroscopy and perfusion scanning are quite time-consuming in critically ill patients. So they, they realise that there are problems there. And the bottom line is that uh, despite these advanced imaging techniques, the ultimate diagnosis is still to culture pus and identify the organism with an operation. Phil, thank you for a very comprehensive uh, uh, summary of those papers. I, th I think, from my perspective, the... the issue with large abscesses is relatively straightforward because in those circumstances it's pretty straightforward that you uh, are going to go ahead and do uh, a resection and i think the difficulty comes in the very small abscesses where oftentimes the surgical risk is perceived to be greater than the benefit and i think that they do mention the threshold which is obviously in millimeters as to how small an abscess would be and i think in those patients where you're not quite sure clearly you want to do everything you possibly can to work out whether it's you know toxoplasma um, fungus tb or, or any of these other things particularly for the more indolent infections so i think th this provides at least 
the range of radiological tools that can potentially contribute to that, even if they clearly can't replace uh, microbiology. Yeah, I mean, hugely important as well, of course, because, I mean, what, what it's telling us is that there are new techniques that can tell us much more about this um, treatable, uh, very serious, life-threatening condition and uh, will allow sooner rather than later treatment. So it, it, it's a little bit cutting edge for practical neurology, but really important. And, and, and I'm delighted these authors have uh, written this paper for us. I, I think that it, it definitely will help, but it's one for putting on the side when you need it, perhaps rather than uh, uh, it's everyday work. So the next one is our editor's choice. It is Desmond Kidd. It is uh, talking about neurological involvement by Bechet syndrome. And uh, Garang, you've been having the pleasure of looking at this paper. Yes, I mean, I think this is a, a wonderful paper. Um, I'm not going to go to it in any great detail because this is obviously going to be the subject for Amy Ross Russell's Editor's Choice uh, paper where she will be interviewing uh, Desmond and go through it in more detail. I think there are a few reflections on, on Bechet's disease. I think the, f the first is uh, Desmond has worked on this condition his entire career. And broadly speaking, um, you know, it's a condition which doesn't have any clear-cut diagnostic test. Uh, it, it's almost as if the diagnostic criteria are um, if someone who is experienced in managing Bechet's thinks it's Bechet's, then it's Bechet's, uh, which obviously, you know, is slightly frustrating and yet makes you all the more dependent on someone like Desmond, who's obviously seen a vast number of patients. And he takes you through, broadly speaking, his lifetime's uh, experience of these patients. Um, very heterogeneous. I mean, there's some very sort of key messages. 70% uh, of patients will only have a single episode. 30% will have recurrent disease. Very clearly, uh, population-specific, the epidemiology in you know, white Caucasians is dramatically different from people who come from the Silk Road, and in particular, Turkey, where clearly it's very, very frequent. If you ever find yourself writing up Bongella uh, on a patient's drug chart, you always just have to think, you know, could this, the aphthous ulcers be telling me more than the fact that they've just got an ulcer? Because the, the, the issue is that these are ulcers very much like the ones uh, which we uh, well, people will commonly get, um, but yet they carry such different import. So uh, I think the, the spectrum of conditions is very, it's very wide, it's very heterogeneous. It's the kind of situation where once you work out what it is, it's quite helpful, um, but actually you can imagine it's quite challenging to get there. I, I won't steal Desmond's thunder and go through any more detail other than to commend Amy's podcast, which I must say I'm looking forward to with uh, much expectation. Yeah, because actually uh, D Desmond Kidd, also wrote a single author review for us on sarcoidosis back in 2020. And if I might pick up on your pronunciation, uh, Geraint, um, the pronunciation of Halusi Bechet's name. He, I mean, he, although he's got the cedilla under the C, he's not French, uh, he, he's Turkish. And it's apparently, I, I just looked it up yesterday, uh, it's Bechet, Bechet. Um, so, uh, he published it in the well-known Journal of Skin and Venereal Disease in 1936. So, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a really important condition. And uh, as you say, it's going to elude diagnosis and certainly early diagnosis because of this uh, very general, non-specific presentation and because of the fact that we just don't have a test for it. I mean, it we, we thought we had the pathogy test, didn't we, at one stage? That we're told in the paper that uh, this works for people who are from Turkey and the Mediterranean, but is less good on people from Western Europe. And the reasons for that are unclear. But although 
pathogy is still there as one of the secondary criteria, the primary criteria being three episodes of oral ulcer in the past year, and then you have two of the four of the secondary ones, it's still there, but uh, Desmond doesn't really like it. And uh, he's not really recommending that we, that we uh, uh, do much about that. The, you know, we're going to see it through DVT through cerebral venous sinus thrombosis a great deal and through the lesions of the posterior fossa in particular. And uh, when that happens, then no, at least half have brainstem involvement. It's a very serious condition. No systemic bio- biomarker, delayed because of the, uh, the lack of that, and also no controlled trials of any treatment either. So we're really re- so reliant on experts like Desmond to tell us what to do. There's nothing about pregnancy in this, actually, but um, adverse outcomes of pregnancy uh, are part of the problem, though maybe that isn't uh, core business of of neurologists. Uh, I think the bottom line, like so many papers in uh, practical neurology, is about getting an MDT. And um, there are three in the UK, there there are three expert centres and um, uh, they're the people to refer these cases to. So wonderful, wonderful paper. Very, very pleased we've uh, got this. And um, uh, I think that we, 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 it's a real service to neurologists that Desmond has written here. Excellent. So we then move on to a slight change in, in, in pace and indeed uh, style. And you're going to take us through an unusual how to do it paper. Uh, enhancing departmental teaching in the digital age as easily as one, three, five. What to make of this? Yeah, so this is from John Paul Leach and colleagues in Glasgow. It's an innovation, a teaching innovation. It's it's there's a lot of common sense about it, but he's uh, uh, had the common sense really to to brand it as one three five, and uh, uh, it, it is a short, sharp presentation. One three five means one topic, three slides, five minutes, and what they've been doing in Glasgow is do this before each of their grand rounds, their neurology grand rounds, where someone just takes that one topic and briefly discusses it, and then that starts off what would be a discussion, though one of the things about their 135 is there are no questions to the speaker. That's one bit I didn't quite understand, actually. It's apparently to protect the speaker, but uh, uh, I think if we were to adapt it here, we would have it as a 135331 or something, where there's a three minutes question and one minute summing up and this sort of thing. Because I do think in every meeting, uh, including the ABN and the AAN, it's the questions that, that really are the best bit quite often. But, you know, it's it's a great little idea, I think, and one that would really adapt nicely to a lot of people's um, practice. It's good for the presenter because they have to make a succinct summary. It's good because they feel safe because they're not going to get any questions, so it seems. I'm not sure if that is uh, uh, really going to make them feel safe. It's good for the audience because they know it's only going to last five minutes and it's going to be focused on the subject. You know how your heart sinks when they're supposed to be talking about uh, some uh, CGRP agent for migraine and they start off telling us what migraine is and uh, everyone, you know, is a bit shuffly. So, you know, it's just going to be about what's on the card. Glasgow have a YouTube channel with some of their talks on it. Uh, which are good and worth watching. They don't have a picture of the speaker, it's just um, the slides. 
I felt it was something that might work well for practical neurology, actually. Uh, maybe the odd paper could come in as a 135. It's an adjective turned into a noun now that uh, you have a 135. And I, and I, I quite like the idea for our department and for practical neurology. Yeah, I, I think it's it's a, a useful way to encourage, particularly the juniors to, who's just starting out, to present something, to um, try and crystallise their thoughts on something uh, in a forum which is, is safe and friendly. So as with a lot of these things, it's another idea. So, so the next one, Geraint, is um, oh, what a wonderful paper again. Clinical assessment of parietal lobe function. This is from uh, Masood Hussain in Oxford. You're the expert on neurological examination, Geraint. Where, where does this fit into your armamentarium? So Eunice uh, Tabby and uh, Masood Hussain have produced a very nice review. And it's quite interesting how things have changed because they start with a justification for uh, clinical assessment of parietal lobe function, uh, you know, recognising that actually it's all much more complicated than that now. It's a network effect. You, you can't really test one part of the brain without realising it has ramifications for other parts of the brain. Having said that, they then actually take us through a very nice sequence of uh, practical approaches to uh, what they refer to as rapid bedside uh, examination. I mean, parietal lobe function is obviously quite tricky. This, this notion that people would be clumsy, they're inattentive, uh, it's, it often doesn't declare itself quite as straightforwardly as, for example, the frontal lobe or occipital lobe, where the deficits uh, are relatively easy to map. But they talk about uh, simple ways of doing visual inattention. They take us through uh, extinction, which is obviously where yeah, you're able to perceive both sides. But if you perceive a, a given bilateral stimuli, you are only aware of one side. They give us some very nice examples of how to find constructional apraxia and visual inattention with drawings and, uh, and various things that you can get from the web. And obviously, the inattention and neglect is very much uh, reflecting right parietal function. They then take you through the, the practicalities of assessing limapraxia, copying symbols. Um, I, I must say, we, we were always taught it as the Luria three-hand test, which is a sort of simple mechanical uh, procedures. Uh, interestingly, there's a very nice sentence where they, um, they which I'll, I'll actually read, when it talks about the idea that you, you know, is it a reasonable thing to do to give people hand gestures to mimic? And they say the reader might wonder how such a test is ecologically valid. Why is there a brain system devoted to copying meaningless gestures? And I think it's really interesting because they then actually go on to justify the, the 27 uh, degrees of freedom you get in hand movement, the importance that would be for mimicking, uh, using tools, uh, and, and so on. And so, th actually, th this is not a, an, an entirely arbitrary set of phenomena. It's actually tapping into a sort of core brain uh, function. So you've got a test of attention, visio-constructive visio skills, and limb praxis being a, a mass, a, a quick way to, to do all of these things. They then go on to things which perhaps people may not be particularly aware of. Uh, visual localization, where you um, try and help people, you get them to draw a piece of paper and actually try and find, uh, in essence, reproduce the sight of a, um, a mark on one bit of paper uh, somewhere else, which is obviously quite a complicated sequence of things. They talk about two-point discriminators, and, and, and I'm sure we've all got them. We all got them when we were junior doctors. I don't know whether the, the current registrars have them. I'm not sure how frequently you, we use them, but clearly this is where you could use it if you wished. And 
They then take us through idiomotor and ideational apraxia, the idea that you can get people to mimic things, uh, you know, show me how you'd, uh, you know, um, uh, the, the sequence they are they use is make a cup of tea or, uh, you know, often if you um, get people to do simple things. They then highlight um, Balin syndrome and Gesterman syndrome, uh, recognising that these syndromes actually are slightly uncertain um, practicality, even though they're very classical, they're quite nice things to be aware of. And broadly speaking, you know, have produced a very user-friendly guide to parietal uh, lobe functioning testing. And uh, I think hopefully you know, every, the, the, the junior doctors will read this and they will find their examination richer in, in listing these unusual things to understand what the patients are telling us. Yeah, I, I thought it was one of those rare papers where you sort of wish for a bit more at the end. You know, mostly, yeah, uh, you know, these papers are a bit too long for us, and we're cutting them down. But I, I sort of wish that uh, this had, this this is the one for the general neurologist. I would like to read Masood Hussein talking about uh, one for the parietal lobe specialist as well, uh, because th- this is rich stuff, really. It's the sort of thing that we, we've always enjoyed doing a bit of parietal lobe examination for grand roundsmanship, etc. But uh, here, I think that he, he sort of simplifies it for us, which is good. The uh, attention, the visuous constructive skills, the limb praxis, and uh, then sort of outlines these syndromes as well. I mean, I, I was loving reading it, I must say. A couple of things I learned that I hadn't realised were different. I mean, um, graphesthesia, which is where you draw a number on the hand, is anterior parietal lobe, whereas putting something into the hand, like a coin, is inferior parietal lobe. I I thought they were the same before, but um, I I always remember David Chadwick would put a, he'd always put a two pence coin into the patient's hand and say, what is that? And uh, whatever the patient's answer, he he would say, oh yes, they don't pay neurologists much, do they? And that would get the patient to smile a little bit and he would look at which side of the face moved and if it had a stroke and so forth. So um, all clever stuff. Um, Sorry, Phil, on on that point, it occurred to me, uh, I would normally use 20Ps, 50Ps, which in the UK, obviously, are um, um, hexagonal or um, uh, five-sided. And I I suddenly realised, of course, I never carry money anymore. So, you know, what, what what do you put into the patient's hand to test? Yes, a c- credit card or or a uh, passcode or something. Uh, yeah, yeah. I think actually, they've got seven sides of the um, the uh, twenty pence coin. Anyway, I would, but- I would, <laughs> I would take it out of my pocket and check. But I've not seen one for such a long time. <laughs> yeah, we just use them for tips, etc. Anyway, so that that test of praxis is is rather gone. But um, anyway, if you ever do do it, inferior parietal lobe or posterior insula. So I love the paper, um, and uh, it's what it's. It's one of those almost from a bygone age, I suppose, where we would localize and think that we were localizing truly to each individual lobe, whereas, of course, we're localizing to the connections as well uh, to those areas of the brain. Um, this is a really nice clinical paper. Yeah. Well, so we get we go on from uh, what would actually be regarded as classical neurology to to really the, the very much the cutting edge stuff. And uh, I think you're going to take us through genomic testing in neurology, which comes from Vanny Jane, uh, Rachel Irving, and uh, Ang Harrod Williams in Cardiff. So over to you, Phil. Yeah. So this this is a really important paper. Again, we increasingly are using genetics, genomics in our clinical practice. 
And we need to know more than just a brief working knowledge of it. We need to understand a lot of the terms that are involved and in particular to understand what the implications are for the patient of doing a genetic test. So first things first, things first uh, what's the difference between genetics and genomics? This seems to be genomics. Well, genetics is the study of genes and the traits that are passed down from one generation to another. But, and uh, there are actually 21,000 genes, but these occupy only 2% of the genome. And that is why 60% of our genome is identical to that of a banana, and why we're different from bananas. So whereas genomics is the study of all of the person's genes, the and the whole of the genome, in fact, and that's what we're uh, about these days. So neurology has more than its share of rare genetic conditions. And uh, Vani Jain and colleagues take us through some of the terms that we need to know about. Principal among those is the word variant, uh, which, of course, is the, you know, we've all got millions of genomic variants and they make the differences between us, but also give the key to some polygenic diseases. But this is the preferred term to mutant, mutation we don't use anymore. And I've mentioned locus heterogeneity already, which is where the same phenotype, Alzheimer's disease, for example, can be caused by all sorts of different genes on different chromosomes. And uh, so th this is all part of putting the clinical uh, aspects to uh, the genetic disease in practice. So she gives a nice analogy with MR scanning, actually, where you use different techniques to see and report the abnormality. You might study the whole genome, the whole exome. Uh, you might just study a gene panel of um, genes of interest for a particular condition, like you do for epilepsy or ataxia. Or in the case of Huntington's disease, you just simply look at a single gene and uh, study that in great detail. So we need to know about array CGH, which stands for Array Comparative Genomic Hybridization. Uh, this is something that is going to affect many neurological conditions which have polygenic inheritance. And, um, but we need to know, I think, most of all about when we apply these in practice and uh, what the practical implications are. So neurologists will be involved in this, in initiating the process often. So we need to make sure there is no misconception that that a, a genetic test that's negative has ruled out any condition. I mean, the exception might be something like Huntington's disease, but not for ataxia and epilepsy. That you can't really consent people for every condition that you're looking for, that you can just give a general overview. The big thing is incidental findings, these variants of uncertain significance about what you do when you find the BRCA gene or a, a gene for Alzheimer's disease, etc. The implications for the individual, I mean, many people with genetic conditions that run in the family have lived experience and are experts themselves. But for others, the possibility of a genetic condition comes as a terrible shock. And knowing you've got one can have impact on family members, personal relationships, insurance, and bring guilt as well. And irrational guilt it may be, but passing on a condition uh, brings that. And some people just don't want a genetic test to confirm what they know is the obvious. So we need to be able to address all of these things. The biggest problem for neurologists probably is the risk of doing a predictive test 
in the guise of a diagnostic test, someone with a relative with Huntingdon's who gets non-specific symptoms, you know, there's a big risk then in doing a Huntingdon's test uh, because it turns out to be predictive and has implications for other people in the family, very big implications. I like the paper that that uh, there are two sort of really well-selected vignettes at the end highlighting two particular problems. One where uh, the diagnosis spoiler alert, of DRPLA was only found after, you know, extensive sort of uh, screening investigations with genetics, but only when it was disclosed that another family member had this, and then they looked specifically for it. But another that's quite sad, really, where a new mutation for someone with Alzheimer was possibly found, a pre-senilin gene mutation, but it wasn't described before. And uh, not in the literature, and therefore they couldn't say it was definitely pathogenic and therefore couldn't um, quantify the risk, couldn't give reproductive advice, etc. Very frustrating for the family. So um, very very well-chosen examples, I think. Superb paper, beautifully illustrated, by the way. Spells out all you need to know as a neurologist dealing with genetic conditions. Yeah, Phil, I agree. I thought it was a very nice paper. I think the other thing that was quite helpful is uh, a recognition that Sometimes you have to ask for different types of tests. I mean, so in the MR analogy that you mentioned, the different sequences doing different things. And so, for example, um, whole genome sequencing is very helpful for lots of different conditions, but actually it's very poor at finding uh, copy number variants. So uh, if, you, if you think a copy number variant is a potential uh, genetic abnormality, you have to actually look for that separately. So it, it is a, a case where discussing with the genetic teams to make sure that you're doing the test that's most appropriate is probably the best way to get the best out of this new technology. So very useful. Yeah. M MDT again, isn't it, I think? MDT++. So we, we we're also going to talk about the editorial in this, this issue as well, Geraint. Um, prescribing in pregnancy is from Ruth Dobson, and colleagues in uh, in London. So, um, do you want first go at this one? But I, I mean, I think this is is really tackling an issue that sort of starts life in in the issue with sodium valproate, which obviously is a very dramatic example of a, something which is clearly very troublesome uh, and very dangerous for women to take in pregnancy, and and has led to lots of changes in the way in which we prescribe it. But the moment you reflect on that, you realise that actually almost none of the agents that we use have been tested in pregnancy. So we're, we're, we're always dealing with this huge uncertainty because uh, pregnant women are excluded entirely appropriately from the, the clinical trials, which would otherwise inform these, these sort of things. And in neurology, we have a particular problem because obviously a lot of the conditions, the chronic conditions, particularly MS, uh, are more prevalent in young women. So that, that's exactly the population um, who are at risk of getting pregnant for whom you don't really have the appropriate advice. And th there's the risks, obviously, with running into pregnancy. So actually, if you are on a medication and you fall pregnant, but equally, you've got the risks of then not coming off medication in order to prepare for pregnancy, or indeed not using agents if you're considering pregnancy. So you've got a whole series of different things, all of which impact on uh, the potential treatment options available. And obviously, one then comes to the, um, uh, the summary of product characteristics, which inevitably focus entirely on the downside. So you have this very asymmetrical set of information, um, which obviously can be very problematic for the women. And I think they have a very nice discussion as to 
how we could try and approach this. Um, the idea of registries to try and enhance the uh, delivery of, of, of this care and certainly to, to develop enough information to be able to usefully inform people for the future. And I, I think the uh, development of consensus guidelines to try and give clinicians some support in this difficult area while they're essentially working off poor quality data. So I think it's very very important. I mean, it doesn't provide an answer, but I think recognising it as an issue is the first step to trying to, to take it forward. Yeah, and, and helping people to recognise it, helping patients to recognise that... Uh, you know, there's hazard, for example, in not taking Valproate, as you say. I mean, there's a harm to people in the fact that they are they're not being allowed to, to try sodium Valproate early on and they are at risk of serious harm from their epilepsy. Of course, this editorial is written from the uh, lens of MS, and uh, but the same sort of avoidable harms there by uh, withdrawing and uh, uh, avoiding natazumalumab and fingolimov, etc. So, yeah, bottom line, women should be encouraged to enrol on registries. And because I think the only way for the future is to know which drugs are safe, to have some quantification of risk, um, to, to, to try and develop some degree of informed choice. Because clearly the risks aren't just for the patient, uh, they're also for the unborn child. But equally, um, if they don't end up falling pregnant and not every woman who tries to fall pregnant achieves it, they may be actually taking a, a personal risk for an uncertain uh, future. Right, well, I can hear the closing music in the background, so um, it is uh, time to uh, sign off for another month. So thank you very much indeed if you have been listening, and we want to have your feedback on the journal, on the podcast, please. Enjoy listening to the other podcasts as well, but uh, it's goodbye from me, Phil Smith. And goodbye from me, uh, Garrett Fuller.